Well, thank you all so much. I'm so glad to get to be here this morning uh, with you all, even in these wild circumstances. Um, in fact, I was laughing earlier this week. I was working on the sermon. I was uh, in the lobby. I was sitting at the counter in there, and I was working. I was studying the passage. I had turned off my internet. I had turned off all distractions, and I have my headphones in, and I'm sitting there, and I'm feeling in the passage. I'm feeling what God is doing, and I look over, and Nate's walking down the hallway, and he says, hey, by the way, and I take out my headphones. He's like, they just stormed the Capitol. You may want to check in. Don't worry about it, though. Keep working on your sermon. And so I got sucked into that as well. I spent the rest of the afternoon praying and wondering what that meant for uh, the sermon this week. And actually, later that afternoon, I was talking to a mentor, and I was on the phone with him, and he was saying he had just stepped out of the pastorate. He's actually now working as uh, somebody over pastors, and he said, I'm just really glad I'm not preaching this week. And he said, by the way, when is your first sermon at New City? And I said, it's this week, and he started laughing at me. And so as we come to the text this morning, uh, would you pray with me one more time that God would open our ears? I actually want to pray a prayer from, uh, by a guy, by the, a theologian by the name of Walter Brueggemann that I stumbled across this week uh, that really spoke to me and just trying to hear what God is doing. So healing and sovereign God overmatch our resistant ears with your transforming speech. Penetrate our jadedness and fatigue. Touch our yearnings by your words. Through your out loudness, draw us closer to you. We're ready to listen. Amen. Punchinello found himself in a place of hopeless despair. See, Punchinello was a creature known as a Wemmick. Wemmick were these, these beautifully and intricately made wooden creatures by their creator, Eli. Eli had fashioned them and painted them. Many of them had talents. They could do things like sing. They could do things like dance. They created beautiful art. Some of them just were merely beautiful to look at. Their paint was nice. They were tall. And the Wemmicks had a tradition where they would carry around a box of stickers, and when they came across somebody who was beautiful and had talents, they would reach into their box and they would pull out a star. They would stick it to the person. And those who were covered in stars were the most revered in society, those that everyone looked to and desired to be like. But there was a dark side to this tradition as well. See, when they came across somebody who was short or who couldn't jump high or was clumsy or had chipped paint, something was wrong with them. They would reach into that same box and they would pull out a, a dot and they would stick that black dot to the person, showing their flaws. And nobody had more star, er, dots than Punchinello. He had tried so hard for so long to get just one star, but when he would try to jump high, he would stumble and fall. And all of a sudden, he'd find himself surrounded with people sticking dots to him. He would try to dress up to look nice, but with his chipped paint, people would come and stick dots. And the sinister madness of this all is that those dots and those stars stuck to them no matter how hard. They tried. This is the opening to a story by Max Lucado called You Are Special. 
And I was reading this story to my daughter. It's a children's book. And as I was reading the story to my daughter a couple months ago, it hit a little too close to home for me. Because I don't know about you, but this season has derailed so many of the plans that I had. I thought I was on one trajectory. I thought I was headed one way. I thought I was defined by one thing. But I didn't realize how much a global pandemic would shake that up. And it hit me in a place a few months ago. I was driving down in the fall to my family farm with my family in Roswell. And on the way there, I was listening to music. And I remember just in that moment feeling like, is there any hope at all? Are we actually going to make it through all of this? And I would venture a guess that I'm not the only one that feels this way in this season. This season is one that is such that's causing many of us to reconsider and examine our identities. To reconsider the state of the world and the hopes that we have. See, we've been shaken in a world that feels filled with upheaval. And all of us are just wondering what's next. And it's times like these that we can feel like our lives are filled with far more dots than stars. We can feel like we have dots both from our own interpersonal doubts, but also dots from the doubts that the world places upon us. And this has certainly been the case this week. As I talked to friends about how they were feeling about the events on Wednesday, I had numerous friends that said, I I was sure that 2021 was going to be better. And they found themselves wondering, was it actually going to be that case? And let's be honest, too, it makes us wonder what it means for us to be a follower of Jesus in this season. What are we supposed to do as people who follow Jesus when it can feel like the world is caving in? See, the early church in Rome, they had similar questions. In 49 AD, Claudius, who was the emperor, expelled all of the Jews from Rome, which included all of the Jews who were following Jesus. And so overnight, the church went from being a primarily Jewish church to an entirely Gentilic church, a church that was all led by Gentiles. Five years later, though, in 54 AD, when Claudius died, that edict was rescinded, and all the Jews could come back. But you can imagine the tension that happened. All of a sudden, the ethnic tension that had been there was re-highlighted. All of a sudden, the tension of leadership, should the Gentiles or the Jews lead, was highlighted. And on top of that, they were beginning to face persecution as a church. Lesser rights. People taking from their homes. And we know with the hindsight of history that it's going to quickly move from them not only having lesser rights, but for them losing their lives as they're led into the arena. And as Paul writes to them, Paul actually writes to them as never meeting them before. Paul's never met the church in Rome. So what's Paul supposed to say to encourage this church as he writes to him? Well, as Paul writes to them, he encourages them to press on in hope in the midst of their sufferings because of who God is and what he has done for them. And so today we want to just take a look at this incredible encouragement that Paul presents and how it changes everything for us. And so if you have a Bible and you haven't opened there yet, or if you have an app, or if you have the New City app, and you want to open to Romans 8, oh, 8 verse 18, we'll start there this morning. And just to set the stage of where we've been so far, so far, Paul has written to them to point out the reality that they're living in. 
By the finished work of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection, God has not only rescued us, but given us a new identity in Christ. Last week, Nate highlighted that the opening of Romans 8 asserts that when you empower the Spirit of God with the Word of God within you, change is inevitable. Yet, just like Punchinello, we have doubts, right? We have those voices in our head, those voices of culture, the voices of those around us that make us wonder if this, is, if this can actually happen. But this seems to be contrary to the good news of the gospel. See, the good news that Paul highlights all throughout Romans 8 is that we are heirs. We have an inheritance because of who God is and what God has done. Yet, even if this is true, there's still a tension that Paul highlights right off the bat. Even as heirs, life has suffering. This is what it says in the first few verses of Romans 8, 18, uh, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who is subjected it in hope. That the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul starts by pointing out this, that the suffering that we experience now is nothing compared to the glory that we will have one day. And this isn't actually just Paul's opinion. That word consider there is actually implies like a firm faith and conviction in the truth. Think of it this way. My mom, I have three younger siblings, and I definitely was the kid that like, tried to boss them around and make them do what I wanted them to do. And my mom would always tell me to consider the consequences. Now I promise you that when my mom told me to consider, she was not giving me an opinion of her, what the consequences would be. But it was a firm faith of what was going to come when I bullied my siblings. See, Paul is speaking from the conviction of the good news of the gospel. That as heirs, we have been rescued. And this isn't actually just for us. There's a promise that we will be glorified with Christ, but also that the cosmos itself will be glorified. It's not some personal salvation, just limited to the individual, but that the world will be made right or as the author J.R.R. Tolkien put it, that all sad things will come untrue. And while Paul speaks to a future reality that's beautiful beyond, merit, uh, beautiful beyond measure, there's also an acknowledgement to the struggle that we face. See, the other thing that is mentioned at the beginning is that suffering is part of reality. It's not something also that's limited to humanity. Again, Paul wants to point out that the earth, the ground that we live on, the cosmos itself, is also part of this broken reality that we live in. That the sin and brokenness that we experience in the world around us is a shared experience that we have with the cosmos. In fact, creation has been subject to the fall as well. Reality itself is in decay and falling apart. It's the house on the road that you drive by and you wonder if anything beautiful could ever be made out of it. But thankfully, this isn't where Paul leaves us. But he immediately turns back to God's glory and his goodness. See, God has not just left us in the world of decay, 
but rather promises that we have incredible hope in his work. This is what he goes on to say in verse 22. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows that knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. See, Paul paints, starts by painting this incredibly vivid picture of the world. He says, it's the, the groans of the world are being redeemed like the groans of the pains of childbirth. Friday night, I was sitting with a group of friends, and we were talking actually about how our kids came into the world. And as we were, we were talking about what stuck out to us in those moments, and we were talking about the agonizing pain of labor for our wives, not for us, but the, the agonizing pain of labor that happened and that was shouted at me at the time. But we were also talking about how in the midst of that, it's nothing compared to the beauty of life on the other side. The beauty and the wonder and the joy of that child as it arrives. See, in that same way, creation groans in the pains of childbirth because on the other side, there's new life and new hope and redemption. We share this with creation as well. See, we too groan inwardly. The word for groan actually implies lament or like a holy discontent. Where we groan at the world around us and the pain that we experience. But this isn't the end of the story because we can groan because we're people of hope. Paul points out that we are people with hope and not some policy or platform but people that have hope because we serve the king that promises to make all things new. In fact, he notes that it's not hope in something you can see because God's hope, his redemption, is far grander than we could ever imagine. It's important because hope is only illuminated in the light of struggle. See, the beauty of a sunrise is only known because of the darkness that surrounds it. Which we can be, let's be honest, it's hard for us to grasp at times. I mean, in light of the events this week, it can at times feel hard to feel like we have hope. Yet the beautiful thing about the work of the Spirit is not only that God merely gives us hope, but we can, He also walks with us in our weakness. When we don't know what to pray for, or how, or how to do, and all we know how to do is groan, the Spirit groans with us. That as our imperfect prayers and our hearts cry out, the Spirit hears our imperceptible moanings and animates them into glorifying prayer to God. There's examples of this in Scripture. One of my favorite ones in Exodus, it says that the people of God, when they're enslaved by Pharaoh, groan. That word groan in Hebrew actually means to moo unintelligibly like a cow. It says that they moo unintelligibly like a cow. And the stunning thing is this. It says that God heard them, and then God rescues them. 
even in their imperceptible words, even in our crying out to God, in our doubts. We never walk alone because God hears us, even in the midst of our doubts. See, God has not just left us to a world that is broken, telling us to suck it up and hope, but rather meets us in the midst of it and actually reveals the beauty of his work. Look how Paul closes out this section. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. See, why we can have hope is because God promises to work all things together for good for those who love him. But let's be honest, it doesn't always feel this way. In the midst of a global pandemic where many of us have a fear of sickness or the loss of work or the fear of career or even the unspeakable pain of the loss of a loved one, it can sometimes feel like God isn't good or at least has our good in mind. But what, God, what Paul is promising here is not just some trite word of hope, like that'll all be okay, champ, just go get back out on the field. But what he's saying is that in the end of eternity, the goodness of God's purposes will finally be understood. That God can use even this present darkness to help us see the light and the goodness of his world and reality. See, Paul points out that we can have hope in God even in our suffering and struggle because of the work that he's accomplished and the glory that he promises. This is how Paul gives that rat-a-tat-tat of the gospel at the end. And it's easy to try to figure out what it means. Like, what does it mean to be foreknown? Or what does it mean to be predestined? But really, Paul just wants to get at a simple truth. What he wants us to know is that God chose, knew you. That God chose you. That he made you right. That he called you and that he set you apart as a light to the world. It is a promise that God has delivered us from the forces and powers of darkness once and for all, and one day will make all things right. That for all that call on Jesus and follow him, God has rescued us and set us apart. It's the beauty of the gospel that we have hope in the midst of a hard world. And it's with that stunning good news of the gospel that Paul ends the section. And he takes us on a roller coaster, right? The lows of suffering, the heights of hope and the thrill of the work accomplished on our behalf. But if all of this is true, then what does it actually mean for you and me today? How does this actually change how we live? How does this change how we operate in the world around us? I think Paul wants to call us to three things through this passage. The first is this, we are invited to groan in our pain. It is hard not to see that we live in a reality that's decaying and falling apart. If we're being honest, it's hard. We know this actually, both in our personal realities, we know sin, but the cosmos is also filled with brokenness. We know this in Albuquerque. It's one of the most beautiful but broken places in the United States. I love this city, but we also know the pains of this city as well. We see it in the news around the world of natural disasters, of disease and death, wondering how we can even begin to help. In fact, this morning as I checked the news, I saw that there was a mudslide in Indonesia that killed 12 people. 
And it made me feel that same sense of groaning and longing, wondering what was next. See the, set, see, the reality is that we have suffering in the world all around us. Yet in the midst of this pain, we're called not to just push it away, to push it to the side, to ignore it for the time, but rather to bring our pain to God, to groan in anticipation of what he'll do. The invitation is to groan inwardly as creation around us groans. It's not just complaining, but lament. Lamenting the brokenness and hope. Trusting that God one day will make all things right. I remember experiencing this intimately in 2011. 2011, I went and did some relief work after the earthquake in Haiti. And I was, as we arrived the first day, we went out and observed the city. And we went to one of the major hotels that had collapsed in the earthquake in 2010. And they had cleared the rubble from the parking garage, but not of the hotel yet. And I remember looking at the parking garage and just seeing a fleet of flattened cars. And groaning. Not even knowing how to pray, but asking God, how long until you make all things right? See, it's okay to groan. Because we serve a God who hears and meets us in our groaning. And what this means is it's okay for you to groan. For the small business leaders in our community, it's okay to struggle and to cry out for God to end this pandemic. For the families missing other extended family members because of the travel restrictions, it's okay to groan. For parents unexpectedly homeschooling kids, it's okay to groan at the stress. And for the kids missing your friends, it's okay to groan and desire to see them again. In the midst of our troubles, we can groan because we know that the Spirit of God groans with us. And that God hears us even as our groans can be unintelligible. Yet this is, we also know that this isn't the end of the story. That we're not merely people of groaning. Lament and groaning actually have a key feature. They're only possible in light of hope. This is why Paul exhorts us to remember our hope. The second thing that Paul calls us to is we're exhorted to remember our hope. See, we're to be people of hope in the midst of all the chaos of the world. Hope is not wishful thinking or mere optimism that things will get better. But for us, hope is grounded because we have the incarnation of Jesus, God with us who has come to rescue us and to free us to live both in the now and in the one day. Theologian Michael Byrd puts it, puts it this way. Hope is the cheering and triumph for what other deem a lost cause. Hope expiates the misery of life. Hope is currently in the land of melancholy. Hope is dancing when the music has long ceased. Hope is bread for the soul that is starved. Hope is the voice that whispers to us, all things are possible. Hope is the grace to face our fears, knowing that there is someone greater than the sum of all fears. Hope holds out a light rather than the curse of the dark. Hope is the physician of a terrified soul. Hope is the hero of the weak. Hope is defiance in the face of the tyrant. See, even in the midst of our suffering, hope overcomes the inertia of despair. Listen, I know after this week, hope can feel like it's hard to find. I spent time with a lot of time with people this week who are feeling discouraged or down, disappointed, angry, or fearful. 
But in the midst of all of that, remember that we are people of hope. Hope is the thing that carries us on in the darkest of times. It is the thing that carries us through the uprising and pandemic, through family frustrations and broken relationships, through fear of sickness and death. Hope carries us on because of the God who works all things together for our good, who promises eternity will be much grander than anything we dare hope for. See, we're people of hope in the midst of the suffering of the world because we believe that God can use even that for good. Friday was a big anniversary in my life. Friday was uh, 25 years with type 1 diabetes for me. My first memory is of my dad carrying me through the hospital as a four-year-old as I was diagnosed with diabetes. And if I'm being honest, it's not something that's fun. It's not something that I would wish upon anyone. It's hard. In fact, this week I even found myself with sleepless nights due to roiling blood sugars. But every year we gather together and we celebrate because this thing that has been hard and suffering in my life, God has used for his glory and good. I have relationships I never would have had. I've been, I've been healthy and am able to proclaim the goodness of God through health. Even this thing that as a four-year-old, I remember sitting in the hospital with fear. I remember sitting there wondering what my future held. Something a four-year-old should never have to think about. That thing God has transformed for his glory and his goodness See, the good news of the gospel makes us people of hope. Yet, let's also be honest. As good as hope is, the early doubts of Romans 8 can creep in. Do I belong to the people of hope? Can I myself be hopeful in the world that we live in? Can I be hopeful for my own life change? And this is why Paul wants to point out this third thing to us. We have to remember our identity as heirs. We must remember our identity as heirs. You have to remember this would have been a tension for the believers in Rome as well. Wondering if the, when these groups came together, who was in and who was out. And we wonder the same thing. Can God actually save us? But the truth is this, that God chose you. That God chose you, not by anything that you've done or left undone, but merely because he knew you, chose you, and called you to be his own. See, God desired that you would be his. And this is not based on anything that you've done, but simply because God loves you. See, nowhere else in the world are we not defined by our merits or our accomplishments. We define ourselves by our hobbies, our jobs, our past, our, our present, our skills, or our loves. We define ourselves by our failures and our losses. But for those who follow Jesus, we are now defined by God and his love for us. That he knows, chose, and called you to be on mission with him. See, we have hope because of, God, because of who God is and what he's done and is doing for us. Or as the band Half Alive puts it, I am creation both haunted and holy, made in glory. Even the depths of the night cannot blind me as you guide me. 
See, if this is the case, then our hope is not ethereal or out there, but it's grounded because we've been called God's own. We have hope in the midst of our sufferings because of God's finished work on the cross. And then if this is true, then we have to ask ourselves this question. What are we hoping? What are you hoping? See, this week, as you continue to start the new year off, maybe it's time to take stock of what you hope in. Ask yourself what you're desiring this year and what it reflects about what you hope in. You may be surprised that you're living in light of a false identity. And maybe there's people that are listening here this morning, both in person and online, that you don't yet know Jesus. Know that Jesus' hope is for you too. See, what we hope in actually changes how we act. It changes what we groan for and how we live in the world around us. If we hope in the kingdom of God, then we are people that will live in light of the kingdom of God. We will be a place of community and care, drawn together by the grace of God. We will care for our neighbor and the outsider. We'll seek justice for our city and desire to see God's kingdom come to Albuquerque, to earth, as it is in heaven. Yet if our hope is in the work of man, then we'll see kingdoms that crumble. But when our hope and our trust and our very identity is rooted in God, the one who rescued us from all sin and death, it changes everything. Punchinello's story doesn't end with him covered in dots. One day, Punchinello was walking down the road in his village and he saw Lucia, Wemmick, that stood out. She stood out because she didn't have any stars, but she also didn't have any dots. And people would see her, the other Wemmicks would see her and how beautiful she looked without any stars or dots, and they would come up to her and they would stick a star on her, but that star would fall to the ground. And in disgust, because the star couldn't stick, they would reach back into their box to grab a dot, and they would put it on her as well. But the dot fell to the ground. As Punchinello saw her, he became intrigued, and he went to her, and he said, Lucia, how come none of them stick to you? How come none of the stars or the dots stick to you? And she said, oh, that's easy. I go spend time up the hill with Eli, our creator. Punchinello found himself filled with trepidation because he knew he wanted to be free of the dots. But he didn't want to go to Eli covered with the dots that he already had. One day he finally mustered enough courage and climbed the fence and went up the hill to the house, to Eli's shop. And he cracked open the door. He ducked his head in. Eli was at his bench working, and he said, without looking back, Punchinello, I've been expecting you. Come here. Come closer. Let me see you. Punchinello came forward and sat on Eli's workbench, and Eli looked at him and said, that's quite a few dots you have there, Punchinello. And Punchinello panicked, and he started to say, I know, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I try so hard to get stars, but they keep sticking to me and I keep messing up and I'm not good enough and people keep putting them upon me. And Eli interrupts him. He says, no, Punchinello. No. He says, you're special 
not because of anything else, but you're special because of the way I made you. You're special because of me. See, here's these words of hope, these new words of identity. Punchinello sees the first dot fall to the floor. Oh, brothers and sisters, may we be Punchinello. May we lament the way we see the brokenness around us. May we long for something more. But may we also have hope in the glory of God. A hope that changes our identities and our freedom to live in the here and now. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Lord, thank you that in the midst of our failures, in the midst of our weaknesses, in the midst of our struggles, God, that you have not left us to pain and suffering. That while that's part of the world that we live in, you have given us hope in your Son, Jesus. Lord, may we cling to that hope for dear life, and may we not forget who we are and whose we are that we are special, that we have hope because of you. Jesus, thank you. Lord, I pray as we go into this week that you would help us remember who our true hope is in and help us see how that changes our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen.